Good morning. Uh, years ago, I've, I've told you uh, some about this before, but years ago, uh, our church uh, started working with a consultant uh, named Don Green, and uh, he came uh, to our church and worked with our leadership and started helping us think through uh, some mission and some vision pieces of our church. Uh, through that consulting, uh, we came up with the vision statement that we are a growing family journeying together to be more like Jesus. And uh, out of that came kind of a renewed vision for our building uh, that we're kind of currently in the middle of that you're hearing announcements about updating and, and changing our building to better reflect our vision. But as part of that process, uh, Don began to talk to us about our elder or leader selection process and how we're raising up leaders and kind of what we're doing and, and all of that. And it was during one of those discussions that one of our elders uh, came up with an idea. He said, how about if every year uh, we set aside a Sunday and we just talk about what the Bible has to say about eldership and about leadership. And I want to be honest with you, just being real upfront, I kind of resisted the idea internally to begin with. And uh, the reason I resisted the idea internally uh, was I feel like there's, that we have a lot of special Sundays in, in the church. You know, Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day, Father's Day, all of these special Sundays. And I thought, man, do we really want to add in an additional special Sunday uh, to talk about eldership uh, and leadership? And uh, I ended up kind of deciding uh, to, to go along uh, with it. And I got to be honest with you, it's one of the best ideas I've ever had. Um, <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but it, th this, this is an important Sunday for us because it's, it's a Sunday where we talk about uh, what the Bible says about eldership, what the Bible says uh, about leadership. So for those of you that are new today, uh, I, I want you to know our church is broken up into three zones. Uh, we've got kind of three groups, and each of those zones... Uh, we have an overseer or an elder for each of those three zones, and they're, they're each led by two elders. And, and the elders, what, what they do with that zone is they help kind of pastor and minister to the flock. They visit people in the hospital. They pray for people. They keep in touch. Um, their other responsibilities, an elder's responsibility is to make sure, like, what I'm saying from up here and what our Sunday school teachers and small group leaders are saying, what it's saying is true and biblical and right. They guard against false teaching in the church. They're leaders. And uh, I'll, I'll talk about that more in a little bit, but today we're kind of launching our elder selection uh, process, and we'll talk more about that later. But I, I love that we do this, and the reason I love that we do this is if you've ever attended another church, you know that a lot of churches go through their elder selection process by asking the wrong questions about eldership and leadership. So for instance, I know some churches who the chief kind of question they ask when it's time to select elders is, whose turn is it? Right, whose turn is it? In other words, who's been in the church uh, the longest? And it doesn't consider the character of the leader. It doesn't consider the gifting of the leader. And what I've seen happen in some churches is they ask, like, whose turn is it like 30 years ago? And they selected like three or four guys, and they've never asked that question again. Uh, and so the same three or four, and if one of those guys were to ever step aside, they'd ask that question again of whose, whose turn is it. And so no real good ideas or new ideas ever come to the top. Um, another kind of question uh, that, that's asked in some churches, all right, time to select elders. Who does everyone like? Who, who does everyone like? And it becomes kind of a popularity contest. Now listen, don't misunderstand. There is a relational component to being an elder. 
We'll talk about that as the message unfolds, that we want elders that are going to treat people with kindness and treat people with fairness and treat people like Christ would, would treat them. But listen, the best gauge of leadership and the best gauge of eldership is not necessarily likability. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you why. One of the truths that, that we'll study about leadership as the series unfolds, one of the truths about leadership is that as soon as you make a decision, and it can be literally any decision, as soon as you make a decision, somebody is most likely at some point going to disagree with the decision that you make. So, you know, you've heard of churches like this. Thank goodness this has never uh, happened here with us, but you'll hear churches that where they make a decision about color of carpet, for instance, and the church ends up splitting over that decision. Or you'll hear a church make a decision about pews versus chairs, and there ends up being a big disagreement about that. I know of one church that decided uh, to feed hungry kids. Right? They started ministry to feed hungry kids, and someone disagreed. Uh, I sometimes have joked, I sometimes have joked that if you took a poll in a lot of churches across America about Jesus returning on a certain day of the week, uh, there'd be disagreement. Because, you know, we got something scheduled that day, right? You know, we got, just as soon as you make a decision, it allows for some, some disagreement. And so um, decisions need to be made in the church. And so if you have uh, somebody that, that's unwilling to, to make any decisions, they probably do have a high likability, uh, but they have a low decision-making uh, ability. And so the, the likability is not necessarily, I mean, it's part of the gauge, but it's not the complete gauge. Uh, another gauge that some churches ask is who's been successful, so you kind of examine business and life and who's gotten promoted or who's made a lot of money. And listen, a person like that might, might turn out to be a, a great elder, but, but that's not the gauge that Paul is going to teach us about. Because there are ways, Paul's going to say this in, in, in some of the texts that we're going to study, there is a way to do business that would make you not a very great elder. There are some ways you could do that. Like if you had a uh, love of money or if you handled your business in a cutthroat way, if you were dishonest. So success is not necessarily, worldly success is not the criteria that Paul wants to teach us. Open up your Bibles to Titus 1. We're going to be studying the book of Titus uh, last week and this week and for a couple weeks into the future. Uh, and if you've been uh, here last week, uh, you remember that we talked about how Titus was one of the first Greek converts in the church. And Paul would often use Titus uh, as an example of what um, a person that wasn't born and raised Jewish coming into Christianity, what that could look like. Paul considered Titus to be his son in the faith. Uh, Paul was like a father figure to him. Paul took Titus with him, this young leader, while Paul started churches all around the island of Crete. Uh, Paul ended up moving on from there, and so he left Titus there to kind of manage the churches in Crete and, and kind of gave Titus uh, that leadership responsibility. And he begins to talk to him in chapter 1 about what are the questions you should be asking as you're selecting elders? What, what, are, what are the criteria for what a good elder or what a good leader looks like? Because he knows that Titus is managing multiple churches and he wants Titus to teach the church to do this well. And there's really two sections to this text. The first is the who. Who should you be looking for? What questions should you be asking? The second is why. Why this is so important. And, and Paul's going to teach Titus about that as well. So let's start with the who. Verses uh, 5 through 9. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, 
a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, uh, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So Paul kind of asks one question, uh, says the church should ask one question uh, about men that they're thinking about putting into eldership and and leadership uh, positions, specifically eldership, since uh, he's talking about eldership. And here's the question. Are they blameless? It's not who's been there the longest. It's not who's been successful. It's not any of that stuff. It's are they blameless? And this is where a lot of us check out because we say, well, who on earth is? Right? Most of us feel this way of ourselves. I'm not blameless. I, I don't think you're probably blameless. The way we, that we use this word in our kind of English lexicon is like, man, only Jesus himself was not blameless. So I think it's a, this, this is a good point for us to kind of step aside uh, and do a little Greek word study of this word that Paul uses for blameless because it doesn't mean perfect. Right? If you're looking for the perfect leader, if you're looking for the perfect elder, uh, you are going to be searching for a good a long time because nobody is perfect but Jesus himself. So this Greek word, it carries with it the idea of being unaccused. So he's saying what you're looking for in an elder position is you're looking for someone who stands unaccused. And and the opposite of this word would describe something that, that couldn't be worked out and it lingered on and on and on until finally it had to go maybe before uh, the court or maybe for, before a mediator. And so the unaccused person in this text is not perfect. Instead, the unaccused person works out their problems with their loved ones. They work out their problems with the people around them. So this could be a leader that is sometimes moody or at times has lost his temper, but the people in his life wouldn't accuse him of that because he works out his issues. He repents, he turns away, he asks forgiveness, he changes. It's not the perfect person, it's the person that resolves their stuff. Because we all have stuff, (laughs) Right? Every person in this room has stuff. And so Paul is encouraging this very specific leadership quality in eldership that they are a, a, a person who resolves their stuff. And at our church, we practice, I keep talking about guys because at our church, we practice an all-male eldership. Uh, that's not what this sermon's about. I would be happy to explain how we arrived at that conclusion if you ever have any questions about that. But this really applies to any leader in any position. Uh, whether it be a ministry team leader, a mom, a dad, a friend, anybody in any leadership position, it is important for us to resolve our stuff because we all have stuff. So one morning, I'm trying to get my five-year-old at the time, he's six years old now, he had a birthday, uh, out the door for school. And uh, he wasn't doing what I was asking him to do. Uh, I had somewhere I needed to be. I I was getting frustrated. And um, I, I ended up kind of yelling at him, you know, to, 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 to do what I was asking him to do, yelled a little bit, and he still wasn't doing it. So I took out the only tool that I have left in my tool, book, uh, in my tool bag. Uh, I called Cheryl. Um, and uh, I, I put her on speaker with Sam. And I said, uh, your son, my son doesn't act this way, so, right, no. Your son won't get dressed. 
and I put him on speaker and she talked to him and she worked her mom black magic and uh, he, he got dressed. And so we got in the car after he'd gotten dressed. We were running a little bit late, but we got in the car and we started driving to school. And I, I kind of turned back to him and I said, Sam, I want to express to you right now, I'm sorry. Uh, I have an appointment I need to be at. Uh, I was frustrated. I yelled at you. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, I kind of lost my temper a little bit. And he said, like most five-year-olds would, Daddy, it's okay. And so we were driving a little bit further. And I looked back and I said, is there anything you want to say to me? I've expressed to you that I'm sorry for kind of losing my cool. Is there anything you'd like to say to me right now? And he said, I said it was okay. <laughs> so, right, not exactly the point I was getting to, right? So we all, we all have these kind of dark moments where we lose our cool, we lose our temper, we wake up grumpy, we wake up irritable. We all, Paul is not talking about the perfect person. He's talking about when you screw up, when I screw up, that we seek to resolve our issues with the people around us. So sometimes we read these texts and we're like, man, Paul repeatedly in this text uses the words, you're looking for someone who's blameless. It's like, who, we're, we're never gonna find anybody because everybody could be blamed for something, but that's not how Paul uses the word. That's our English version of it. Paul is saying, no, look for somebody that is good about resolving the issues they have with the people in our life. And Paul kind of gives us two ways to evaluate leadership uh, in this text. Um, and I think they're both really important as we uh, kind of kick off this process. Um, the first kind of tool he gives us to evaluate uh, the character and leadership ability of uh, an elder, and honestly, any leader for that matter, is relationships. And Paul tells us exactly what he's looking for when he talks about relationships here. He says, you're looking for someone who's been faithful to his wife, been a faithful husband whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And here's the question below the statements is, has he led his wife and children well? Has he led his wife and children well? So it's kind of a hot button thing here. But Paul is instructing Titus to look at the potential elder's family. He's instructing us to look at their family. And in our kind of uber private society, that we live in today, we're like, well, I mean, is that really anybody's business? You know, you're looking at a man's family, is that really anybody's business? All I can tell you is Paul thought so, right? Paul, Paul believed it was uh, the business of somebody that wanted to be an, an elder. Paul thought it was, and when you understand what the Bible teaches about leadership, you understand this because you want someone who's gonna uh, be a servant leader, who's gonna lead with love, who's gonna lead with grace, who's gonna lead the way the Bible in, instructs. And so here's the kind of question behind this is, the, the first family, before they lead God's family, the first family that God gave them, have they led that well? Have, have they led their own family well before they lead the family of God? And listen, this is not a, a legalistic checklist. I've been uh, around churches before that kind of treat this uh, as a legalistic checklist where it's like, man, if there's any problems in somebody's family with their children or even with their wife, they're just not qualified to be a leader. And I don't believe that's what Paul is teaching. I don't even believe that's necessarily true. Because there could be problems in a leader's family or with their children that are not related to the leadership of mom and dad. And so I think, my, this is just my opinion, the heart behind this teaching is, if there's a problem in the family, if there's a problem in the marriage, if, if some problem comes out in, in the, the eldership process, you want to talk about that during the process. You want to have a time where you can talk about that during the process to find out if this is a leadership issue in the family or if it's some other issue. But don't take a legalistic stance here and lose sight of the question that Paul's actually asking. 
Have they led their family in a loving and godly way? And listen, I want you to know, you know, as part of the, the in conversation here, we have an opportunity to do this at Northwest as part of our process. We're launching the process today. Uh, we got worksheets in the back. You can kind of think and pray about who might come to your mind to be an elder. And then uh, the first thing we do is we give them a questionnaire where they answer a whole bunch of questions about what they believe and who they are and what they care about. And then we bring them in for an interview. And we talk about family, we talk about marriage, we talk about generosity, we, we talk about all of those things because we want to provide in our process an opportunity to discuss things like this that might come up. So he says, so the first way to kind of evaluate leadership is relationships. The second way to evaluate it is attitude. And he gives some examples again. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. And this makes perfect sense when you think about what the New Testament teaches on the idea of leadership, is what do overbearing, quick-tempered, and dishonest people all have in common? This is not the beginning of a joke, all right? What they all have in common is that they don't really consider the interests of others, right? And, and that's the type of leader you want, is someone who is going to consider the interests of others. So the quick-tempered and violent person is that way. They're quick-tempered and violent because you won't do what they want you to do. You, you won't fall under their control. So they lose their temper. Uh, they're self-interested. The overbearing person is that way because they're trying to manipulate you to do what they want. They're self-interested. The dishonest person is trying to deceive you for their own gain. They are a self-interested person. And the Bible is most interested, the Bible is most interested in a servant leader. A servant leader. Someone who, who loves others in that way. And you know where we get this from? This is one of those uh, times where the right answer is Jesus, right? Uh, the right answer is always Jesus, right? And this, we get this from Jesus. We get this from, from the gospel. Let me give you one kind of real famous text. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Paul will go on in the book of Philippians to teach in your relationships with one another, one another have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself, anyone remember? He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. See, the person that internalizes the gospel, and, and, and Jesus understands this, that Jesus could have used his position and his power to his own advantage. He very easily could have done that. But he used his position and his leadership for our advantage so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be set free, so that we could have the life-changing relationship with God we were created to have in this, life, in this life and in the next. And I think it would be very difficult for someone who understood this wonderful and beautiful concept to think only of ourselves. See, when, that, when we fall into kind of a selfish mindset of thinking of, of being self-interested above all, we have forgotten or stopped paying attention to the gospel because the gospel encourages us to think about their advantage and to make ourselves nothing and to take on the role of a servant. Now, you may have noticed in this text that the first part of the text is that is everything that an elder should not be. And it's kind of maybe a little bit of a downer, I suppose, right? Not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not wild. But in verse 8, it turns to what he should be. 
That he says the man that you're looking for should be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And, And I think we get this. If you're a parent or a grandparent, I think you get this because we tend to think about our children the same way, that when you tend to evaluate how your kids are doing, you're like, well, they aren't out partying. They aren't lying. They're not stealing. That's good. These are the arts. They're not doing this. All that's good. But then there is this other category of thing that kind of fills your heart with joy. They are encouraging. They are gentle. They are helpful. And we tend to think about uh, uh, these things in in both of these ways. And this is what Paul is teaching us. It's the same uh, kind of uh, flip, flip versions of the same coin. This is what an elder shouldn't be. This is what an elder should be. It's different sides to the same coin. So we examine attitudes. Uh, we uh, understand that sometimes, we, we, we approach this with a lot of grace, that sometimes a person might be having a rough day. Uh, I remember hearing a story one time from Stephen Covey, and uh, he talked about being on the bus, and this man was on the bus with, his cu- with a couple of his small children, and this guy's small children were running wild. And uh, Stephen Covey talks about how everybody on the train was getting annoyed, that this guy's just letting his kids run wild, wasn't paying attention to them at all, and and they're they're going crazy. And um, uh, Stephen Covey finally makes eye contact with the guy, and uh, the guy can tell Stephen's irritated about how this guy's kids are behaving. And he says, I'm sorry. Um, We just came from the hospital where these boys discovered that their, their mom had died, and I should be paying closer attention, but I'm really sorry. See, we, we can misjudge situations all the time. Someone can come off as angry, they just found out a loved one is sick. Someone can be grumpy that they, because they aren't feeling good. Someone, we, we want to be careful that we evaluate this not in a single moment, but over time. So you examine somebody's attitude and how in general uh, they, they have lived their life. Now let's look at verses 9 through 16. Paul has taught us, this is who you should be looking for. And then in verses 9 through 16, he says, and this is why it's so important. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Verse 10. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's prophets had said it this way, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. (laughs) Welcome to the church, right? Um, This saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in faith and and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or or to merely human commands uh, as those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, uh, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So here's why Paul says to, to Titus, it is so important that from town to town uh, that you uh, nominate and, and bring along men who are going to be elders because he is very concerned about the culture that is happening in Crete. He feels like there's deception and lying, there's false teaching, there's worshiping of false gods at every turn. And thank goodness we don't live in a culture like that, amen? No, of of course we do. 
right? Of, of course we do. That, that we have the same issues that, that Crete has. That what I would say to you, just from one preacher's perspective, that for years and years and years, um, I was talking to another pastor about this the other day, for years preachers would stand up and they would identify the two major false gods of our culture as the gods of sex and the gods of money. Gods of sex and gods of money. And preachers would stand up for the last 30, 40 years and they would rail against those two false gods. I believe those false gods are changing. I really do. Um, and I believe that the new false gods that our culture are going to have to battle over the next, you know, 30 years or whatever are leisure and family. And when, when I say leisure and family, both of those things, just like sex and money, are created by God for a godly purpose. But I believe our culture is turning to leisure and turning to family to be something for them that only God can be. And that those are becoming the new. Every study that you read of millennials and of this generation is that they have uh, less interest in some of the sexual habits of their parents and grandparents when, when in their youth. They, they have less desire for that. Um, and uh, they have less desire for money than any generation in history. And so the, there's going to be new gods to talk about. And I think it's going to be leisure and, and family. But here's the point. Every culture, every generation has false ideas and false beliefs, things that they are pursuing when they should be pursuing God. And Paul would say, this is why leadership and eldership is so important because you need leaders and you need elders to do th two things. First of all, you need leaders and you need elders to encourage people in the truth, to encourage people in the truth. In a culture where, where there's deception, in a culture where there's lies, in a culture where it's like, man, just pursue the, the next leisure thing or the next family thing to the sake of all else. In a, in a culture like that, you need to encourage people in, in the truth. It would be like this. Imagine um, a person coming to you, a friend of yours coming to you, and they confess like a sin or a wrongdoing that they're struggling with. Like, man, I just want to confess this to you. I'm struggling with this. I, I don't know what to do. And the friend says, oh, don't worry about that. That's not a big deal. Right? That's encouraging them. Uh, it is not encouraging them in the truth. <laughs> right? And so Paul's making, you know, you don't just want someone that's encouraging, right? Because there's lots of ways to encourage. You want someone that can encourage them in, in the truth or the person that says, man, um, I'm really like scared about the future. Right? And you say, oh, no, 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 nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. That, that is an encouragement, but it's not encouraging them in the truth. Saying we don't know the future, but God knows the future, and he's already there, and he's greater than anything you're going to face. That's encouraging them in the truth. So I think in, in culture, it's really easy uh, to fall into this, to say uh, the, these things like, man, leisure and sports, pursue them. They're, it's no big deal, um, and, and that sort of thing. But we need to encourage in the truth. And so this is why Paul would say it's important for leaders to know doctrine, to know theology, so they can encourage well. The other thing leaders are called to do is call out false teaching. Call out false teaching. Um, in the first century, you'll, you'll notice uh, that, that it was the circumcision group, that there was a group that was saying that in order uh, to become a Christian, you needed to have a surgery. In order to become a Christian, you need to have a surgery, and you needed to, have, to be like a Jewish person in order to become Christian. The church had already made their decision about it, that that wasn't true, but the teaching persisted. So notice Paul's terminology. It's kind of it's wild, but he says, they must be silenced. Right? It's kind of like dark, isn't it? He's, he's not talking about advocating violence here at, at all. Um, he, what he's saying is, man, shut this teaching down. And he goes on to describe it this way. Rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them sharply, 
right? So, um, and, and listen, this will not be perceived as nice. This will not be perceived as going along and getting along. But listen, it is the most loving thing a church leadership can do to protect the church, to restore the false teacher. And just so you know that this isn't a thing that just happened a a long way away on, on the island of Crete with Paul and Titus, I have had to enter into some process of this in every church I've ever served. Right? In every church I've ever served, some kind of teaching has taken hold where you've, you've had to go and say, you've got to stop teaching this. And, and you kind of got to rebuke it sharply, try to restore the person, but say, this is a false teaching. I'll, I'll give you one example because it's a really, really old one at this point. But years and years ago, I, I was at a different church and a couple had been baptized uh, by immersion, just like the way we do it. They'd been baptized in another denomination Um, and then they started attending the church I was serving. And when they came in, a couple uh, elders had started teaching and had had started saying, not elders, a couple teachers had started saying uh, and advocating that they be re-baptized because they had been baptized at a different church um, and they they need to come in and be re-baptized. And so we kind of had a whole discussion about it, kind of a legalistic mindset that needed to be uh, addressed. And we all ended up agreeing that they didn't need to be re-baptized just because they had attended a different type of church. But this is why eldership is so important and why you want high character guys doing that job, men of integrity, men who know the scriptures, men who have a high understanding of doctrine so they can lead and encourage and rebuke well. Because this is leadership in the Bible. It's serving others, it's loving others, it's protecting the church, it's leading by example. See, I have another core conviction when it comes to leadership. We talked about two of them last week. Um, The two we talked about last week is that everyone's a leader. That everyone's a leader. Now, not everyone's called to be a leader in the church, but every single person in this room is a leader. Uh, I have a core conviction that leadership is relational, not positional. So you lead through relationship. You don't lead through position. Here's the third core conviction I have about leadership. You can't lead someone where you've never been. You can't lead someone where you've never been. And so if you want a church of Jesus-loving, service-oriented, others-focused, if you want a church like that, you need leaders who have been there so they can lead us there. Um, and, And I think that's a really important kind of core conviction about leadership. So today, we did it. I'm done. And it's, listen, I want you to know, it's super important that we do this um, every year. And I'm trying to now to, um, versus just getting up and saying, hey, it's Eldership Sunday, I'm trying to work it into a series. So we're going to continue on in Titus next week, uh, be on a different subject when it comes to leadership. But um, you'll find these in the back. These are our elder worksheets. And there are more passages of scripture than just Titus that talk about eldership and leadership in the church. So you can read uh, these passages, and then on the back, it has all of the kind of qualities that Paul lays out. And this is just an opportunity for you to uh, look through this, read through it, pray over it, and see if God doesn't bring somebody to your mind. That, man, I know somebody like this. I know somebody that leads their family well, that leads their marriage well, that, that is servant-oriented, loves others. I know somebody like that. And then there's a spot for you right down here um, to put uh, the, the name of the nominee, the person that you, you kind of have identified to put their name down there. And just to let you know kind of how we work, um, we kind of move forward with the elder process with, with candidates after they've received three nominations. 
uh, because we want someone other than just you, not that we don't trust you, but we want someone other than just you to see this. We want multiple people to see these qualities in them. So if a person gets kind of their name written down by three different people, uh, then we kind of begin a process with them of interview. Um, there's a, a questionnaire, like I mentioned earlier, uh, interview, and then eventually we'll bring their name uh, before, before you and ask you if you know any reason uh, why they shouldn't be an elder. Um, and uh, so that, that's, I like our process for that. Uh, that, that if, um, you know, I, I know churches where they just kind of lay the person out and it's a simple majority and they become an elder. You know what's wrong with that process? What's wrong with that process is 99% of the people in the room could, could think that that candidate is a wonderful person, but one person knows that they lied on a business deal. Um, the one is right, the 99 don't know. And, and so you have to provide an opportunity for one person to say, oh, wait a second, I, I did business with this person or I interacted with this person and it, it didn't go very well. And then that can be talked about and, and worked through. So um, we're starting this today. Uh, it's three weeks. So if you can have these in by the first Sunday in September, uh, think, pray, read, study, and see if the Holy Spirit doesn't bring someone to your mind. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for today. And I wanna thank you for our elders. Um, uh, we have... Uh, wonderful, wonderful elders at this church uh, that take exactly what Paul said in this text really seriously. They guard, they protect, they pray, they talk, um, they lead, they visit, they counsel. Um, they're great. And uh, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would begin to move. Uh, we we want to know who you believe uh, would, would be good elders here. Um, good leaders here, and if you can begin to lay those names on our heart and our mind as we work through uh, the sheet, as we study your word, um, Lord, we would appreciate that so much. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you want to go ahead and uh, stand with me, uh, we're going to sing a song of invitation as we, uh, uh, as we sing this together. If you have a prayer request or a prayer need and you want someone to pray with you, we're going to have a couple of people up here that would love to pray with you. Uh, part of the kind of pastoring spirit of this church is that we pray for each other, so we'd love to pray with you. Um, if you are interested in hearing more about our chief shepherd, Jesus, uh, we'd love to have a conversation with you about who Jesus is and what he accomplished. So you come forward as we sing this song together.